Why don't we get started with News with My Dad? And now, it's time for News with My Dad, the show where we talk with news with my dad. And now, coming at you live, playing the role of my dad, is in fact my dad, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Pop, how you doing? All right, well, I'm going to find out this morning. Why? I'm going to, I have to go in for my lab, uh, my annual lab blood test. Oh, yeah, you're getting your checkup. So we right. will know. We'll have an update on Thursday about how you're doing. Also, we have, uh, we'll, we'll give you your COVID vaccine update. You haven't gotten your COVID vaccine yet, correct? I have not, but I am, I am eligible as of today. Saturday, I tried very hard to get registered. It was completely failed, so I'm going to try again today. And by registered, you mean this was a computer issue? It was, I went, I, I followed all of the instructions on the computer and wound up with answers saying can't do it. And so they gave me a telephone number, and I called the telephone number, and they said, we're full, call 6 o'clock in the morning. Well, good luck, Dad. We'll be tracking this with great interest. Welcome to News of My Dad, the show we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff. When it's unimportant, we try to say so. We take turns. Dad typically takes the first turn. Pop, do you have a shout-out? I have a shout-out. I'm shouting out this morning for Eliezer Puente, who is the proprietor of the Cinnabon at Lloyd Center in Portland, Oregon, and he is expressing his faith both in Lloyd Center and in us. He is reopening Cinnabon's shop in Lloyd Center next week. He just thinks that uh, we're going to survive and, and he's going to take a chance and start paying folks again to provide Cinnabons. And I just think that's wonderful. So is it, I don't know. It was supposed to be like Route 4. I don't know, like, are we supposed to root four malls? I suppose we're supposed to root for Lloyd Center. Are we supposed to root four stores being open? I guess so. Are we supposed to open air, like, cinnamon buns there for people to breathe upon? I guess that's all good news. I don't know. I just don't, I just, I just root for humanity. That's all I'm saying. What's next, Pop? What are you saying? Well, I, I want to acknowledge the passing of George Schultz at age 100, who was secretary of several different departments over his career but he was he was a republican he was an honest dedicated patriot uh, who really put the what he believed the interests of the country first didn't always often didn't agree with what he thought was best for the country but had great respect for him as a dedicated public servant and acknowledging the passing of Hal Holbrook at 95 who spent 50 years pretending to be Mark Twain, really successful, and Hal Holbrook was a, was a real contributor. And then before we dive into the news, I just think we should acknowledge that the Super Bowl game yesterday was kind of a lousy game, but Tom Brady, Tom Brady definitely cemented his reputation as the greatest quarterback of all time. And I've got a quote from Tom Brady, a quote that he gave in September of 2014, seven years ago. Are you ready for the quote? Yes. When I suck, I'll retire, but I don't plan on sucking for a long time. He definitely did not suck last night. I am, there's so many, re okay, so we're not going to spend that much time talking about the Super Bowl, let's be clear. If people have thoughts about it, you can text in. But my a couple things to put it in perspective. One, I when I was a small child, when I was a small child, we were um, and and were you? I'd say no, no. When I was a large child, okay, when I was a medium-sized person, when I was a small person, me, you know, large child, medium-sized, something in between. Uh, it Terry Bradshaw was held out as an outlier because he had four Super Bowl championships, right? And that was like. More than everybody, I had Roger Staubach on my on my wall and Marcus Allen on my wall, and if you could get to two, it was a big deal. And it, Terry Bradshaw of the Pittsburgh Steelers had four, and that was like an outlier. Seven is I, if if four was an outlier, I don't know the word for seven. I guess four wasn't an outlier, but seven sure as heck is. It is it is a remarkable thing. And my favorite graphic of the game was you know most Super Bowls Pittsburgh Steelers six, 
New England Patriots, six. Tom Brady, that's not a team, it's a person. Seven. I thought it was, it was a good, it was a good graphic. The other, uh, other fun fact where, that before this season started, Tom Brady was, had the highest winning percentage of any, uh, of any, I think player, maybe it was his quarterback, but I think any player in NFL history. And before this season, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, no, excuse me, excuse me, no, no, he had the highest winning percentage of any player of any of the major four sports, if you include hockey in that mix. And, and leave out soccer, I guess. If you look at the Buccaneers, they had the worst record of any team, worst record of any team in all the four major sports. That is now different. The Buccaneers now have another championship. Indomitian Sue, our neighbor, uh, not most of the time. Most of the time, he's playing football during the football season. But resident of and certainly native from Northeast Portland, Grant alum, played for the Buccaneers, and now has himself a Super Bowl ring. I don't expect he will retire. Well, Dad, that's uh, that's maybe enough for the Super Bowl for now. What's next? But during during the time we were watching the Super Bowl. I was at your house watching. I was very grateful for not just your hospitality, but the excellent food you provided. There was there was a ring at the door, and I think I would like you to tell that story, and you probably need to tell the background so people who don't know about the sign know what we're talking about. Yeah. it. So I think people now may be aware. You may have been aware of the Stop Trump house. And that the that is the that is the building where Dad lives in the house on the north side, and I live in the house on the south side. It is a two a two house house uh, built before the word duplex was invented, but that you know it's a word that's used elsewhere. Uh, over my portion, but, but emblazoned upon the front of the house, is which is why they came to my door. It was where the word "Stop Trump," and you may have heard of maybe some maybe some even drove by the house. I think we've talked about it here. For a long time, people didn't know whose house it was because we didn't really publicize it or anything. Uh, and but a lot of people knew about the house because you know, stop Trump was paint, painted on it. And we over, we had a little ceremony and and painted over it on inauguration day. Uh, yesterday, someone came knocking on the door. Now people, it, when they knock on the door, it's usually a delivery person doesn't recognize. Just leave it there so you don't have to. The dog doesn't start barking and freaking everybody out. But I was like, but. It, Somebody just stayed there, and they rang twice. You just ring once, leave your package, leave. They rang twice, and I went there, and there was a woman standing on the porch. And she, you know, did the courteous thing by backing up, so she was, you know, 12 feet away or whatever. And I opened the door, and she told me the following story. She said, I just wanted to say thank you. That uh, my, I have a trans daughter, and she has had a really tough four years, and has felt really alone. And having that sign allowed me to say, look, there are allies right in your neighborhood. We live four blocks away, and it was a constant reminder that she was not alone. And I got a little emotional, got a little teary-eyed. I just said thank you, and I and so I did not, and I did not, and I didn't get her name, which is kind of dumb, and I didn't, uh, but she's a neighbor, so I'll probably see her again soon. And I didn't, uh, uh, and we, I didn't engage in protracted conversation, but that was that, and it felt really, it felt really good. And I, and and the point, I guess, is less the sign. Uh, the point might be her daughter. I actually I did say something. I said tell her tell your daughter we love her. Uh, but I uh, but it is a reminder that where we can have you know it's just a sign of the house. But where we can where we can demonstrate uh, symbols, where we can demonstrate togetherness, where we can demonstrate to use to use Malcolm Gladwell's definition. When act, when activism really counts, it's when it shows courage. When we do when we can engage in activism that is loving and at the same time shows a little bit of courage that can, you never know, you never know what impact that might have on somebody. You never know what the ripple effect might be. We got another, Dad, if we're doing, if we're doing some... Uh, and I just, I just want to say, if by any stretch of a wild imagination that lady is listening this morning or somebody who is listening knows her, thank you so much for that message. That just means so much and we had lots of neighbors come to the ceremony to paint it over and I received I put out a, an information on next door and I received over 50 messages from my neighbors not just in Irvington but around northeast Portland thanking us for the sign it just it, it means a lot by the way don't delete those because the uh 
Don't delete those because the, the young man who did the filmmaking for the police accountability ads, you know, because those were filmed at the those were filmed at the house for the ballot measure that just happened. Uh, he wanted to uh, um, uh, he wanted to do a little video about the sign and 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 those and some of those messages could be interesting could be interesting footage. So, so hold on to those. Uh, the I want to do one other thing to kick off. I want to talk about uh, let's talk about COVID. What and that's where I want to start. Again, we're going to be interviewing Dan Ryan. I'm going to be interviewing Dan Ryan later today. If you have questions about that, ought to be asked to Dan Ryan. Uh, maybe about police, certainly about housing. Nine seven one two two zero five nine seven nine. But Dad, I want to answer the question about what I'm going to be up to going forward and the project I'm engaged. We did end up getting, and I didn't see it until the show was about to wrap. Uh, at least a couple people who did want to ask, I had sort of demurred when, when you had brought it up, who did want to ask, who did ask, did want to hear what I'm up to. But let's let's talk about COVID first. What are the big COVID news you're aware of? Well, first, the big question is, are we going to outrace the variants? The, the, the need to get people vaccinated so that we kill this sucker before it mutates into something that the vaccines won't handle critical we've just got to do that and and uh, and i'm really concerned about the the, the anti-vaxxers out there both both ideologically opposed to any vaccine but po- folks who have been persuaded by far-right crap that that they sh- shouldn't get the vaccine that if if a, if a substantial minority of folks refuse to get the vaccine, we we could wind up with this this virus forever, constantly mutating, constantly ahead of us, and over a hundred years, it's level to win, just flat out win. And that is probably the biggest thing we're up against. That is probably the biggest risk of this delaying, that every time there is a post questioning whether or not people should wear masks or questioning whether or not people should take a vaccine or questioning whether or not it's real or whether, whenever there is some uh, procedural delay, particularly by the previous presidential administration, the biggest risk of, the, of that timeline lagging on is, in fact, the variance. But there's also just the arithmetic. So this is where I might as well say, so what I'm up to is I'm working with a couple of partners, uh, one of whom built the uh, the world's leading engagement platform for fans of pro sports. Okay, so he was, and, and to figure out a set of things that were interesting to my other partner and I, who come more from the social movement building arena, about how do you engage people in publicly interested conduct and how do you keep them engaged that was one thing which is a different question and it's it's related to how we try to figure out how the heck do you build a small radio station to get people to care about it and and it's related to how do you when we did online voter registration we built the foundational elements for automatic registration uh, it is uh, when we did uh, budget transparency in the state budget this question about how do you use behavioral Technology, behavioral science, and how to also use information science to engage people and keep people engaged, particularly when it's not the same as just like buying a product for yourself, right? When you're engaged in something that includes some collective element. And uh, and our partner, Dave Shaleen, had uh, built this system that got people, if you were like Kansas City Chiefs fan, I don't know, to like engage more. And came up with some really interesting technology and then went around and asked, what's the where's the most interesting place that you could apply that expertise? Some of that movement building expertise, some of that behavioral science expertise and thanks today, some of that information technology expertise. And the answer that came back was clinical research is if you could uh, if an average if getting an average drug to market takes 12 years and two and a half billion dollars, if you have 30 percent of the people who are in those studies who drop out. Uh, you have 40 percent, you know, so about a third. You have closer to half of them whose data becomes not adherent. Uh, you have average uh, two, you know, the average of of every year there being, um, uh, not every year, every study, about, two, about three quarters to 80 percent of the people who are in a study have to travel on average two years to get to their clinician. 
the first, um, as you get a little bit personal, the, the first study, first time I became aware of clinical, what a clinical trial was, was when I, when my when my mom got uh, and not not Meredith who passed away recently, but my 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 mom, my birth mother, uh, when I was in high school, was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and did not have uh, health insurance. And the and so you know clinical trial was both the hope for a miracle and a way to get care. Uh, and so. And later on, I, you know, I was I studied from a guy named uh, Troy Brennan, who was the head of the Brigham Women's Hospital, essentially, essentially the piece of the, one of the heads of the Harvard Medical Center. And he and then worked first. My first big project as a, for a for a major law firm was on the diversity and inclusion, essentially inclusion of women and minorities in phase three clinical trials, because that ends up who the, the challenges of getting people engaged in clinical trials end up the people who bear the brunt of it tend to be. Uh, communities who have been traditionally disenfranchised, traditionally marginalized, and some of the same stuff that I, we're, I was, you know, studying then and frustrated about then was the same stuff that I've seen like when I was a high school student. Uh, I have since gone back to school uh, at at Berkeley studying clinical, uh, studying management in the clinical research context. I'm interested in it as a general matter, and now it's has uh, has given me some hopefully window into what we're up against in trying to uh, build better engagement. But that's but that's and so we're so we're building a we're building a little company, building a little organization that is going to try to provide tools to help people move through uh, move through that system better, and and shrink the time that it takes. Uh, and and this is it's sort of a long way around the barn, but I may refer to it again in the future, so I might as well uh, explain some about it the background now. But here's how it relates to what you were just saying, just in terms of time. Okay, so let's 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 look at engaging in a COVID study and, and how much time matters. We lost 14,300 people a day in January. I don't remember if that was every, maybe it was 14,600. And, I don't, and I, I don't remember if I looked at that was the daily average. That was just the particular day that I took the snapshot. But regardless, you take that, that's about 600 people in an hour. Uh, and that means that if we could, working collectively as a, as a world, that's in the world, in the world, the plurality of those in the United States, but that's in the world. If we can, for every day it drags on, if you just use the January numbers, and obviously the numbers will change, and obviously also that doesn't count the risk of variants that could make things worse, but if we just use that number for arithmetic's sake, if every day it drags on, we lose another 14,000 human lives. It also means if we could speed up by one hour, we could speed up by one hour this pestilence. We save 600 human beings. But if we could work together even just to say one minute, every time every time somebody's posting about, oh, don't do your vaccine, don't have your kid. Because to be clear, when it comes to kids, we are not getting rid of this thing until everybody's, got, everybody's rid of it, right? Until we reach herd immunity, and that's across demographics. We can start with older people, which is great. We can start with frontline workers. But to be clear, this thing ain't clear until there's herd immunity in every major sector of the population. That includes young people. And so anytime somebody's saying, oh, I don't want to take and you're slowing us down, if we can speed that up by one minute, by the world, just we said, hey, let's just work a little bit more briskly. Let's be a little more together. Let's answer our questions a little more quickly. Let's not make other people slow down. Let's make them speed up. Let's not make them have doubt. Let's not make them have to waste time posting on social media about why something's fake. Every minute is 10 human lives. And any, it seems to me when 10 human lives per minute is at stake, that's a time to pull together. That's a time to embrace science. That's a, that's a time to... Uh, I don't know. Stop the silliness. So that's what I and, and to engage in diligence. So that's what I got. What do you got, Pop? Well, you're, you're we're not done with talking about COVID, but you mentioned you mentioned your mom and cancer. This might be a good time to acknowledge the sad passing, the closing of the Susan V. Komen chapter, not just here but but around the country. Susan V. Komen is was founded by Nancy Brinker because her sister, whose name was Susan V. Coleman, had died from breast cancer, created an organization that has done marvelous things, and, and I didn't want to compliment them and kind of sad that Susan V. Coleman is closing down. Yeah, and to be clear, they're not shutting down nationally. They are shutting down in Portland and southwest Washington. Uh, they're moving, as they say, to a, quote, national approach. Uh, they still reached a fundraising goal last time around, but, yeah, their seven staffers will be 
laid off in northwest in their northwest affiliate uh, based in Texas. They're shutting their chapters around the country. The new operating model is called One Coman. I don't know exactly what all that means, but I suspect we will find out more. The, mo- the money will go. The money will be focused on going to uh, the national organization. I guess trying to run little clinics or trying to run little offices around the country. That's no longer their, no longer their priority. Well, and talking about COVID uh, and the race against the variants, already the South Africa uh, variant apparently is uh, is at least part partially immune to the vaccine. Doesn't get hit by vaccine. COVID news: Ford, Ford, you you think about trucks with Ford, and you think about cars with Ford. You probably don't think about masks, but they. They have applied for a patent for a transparent mask, mask, a mask that you can see through. I think that's interesting, and, and I'm thinking that that if uh, if that gets approved and and the science says yeah it works, the uh, the Washington County, Oregon case against the, the a guy for assault who was convicted and had the conviction overturned to be retried and his victim was unwilling to testify without a mask on her face, they might be able to revive that case and try it because she'd have a transparent mask so he could see her face, which was the constitutional issue that resulted in the dismissal of the second trial. The uh, and, and, and also leads me to talk about another big issue that I wanted us to talk about a little bit, the Vaccine Advisory Council Commission in Oregon it was created to to provide expert advice on who should be vaccine first and, and vaccine policy generally has had to have two private meetings, non-public meetings, because of threats that have been issued against the members of the of that commission, all of whom are volunteers, all of whom or simply citizens of Oregon trying to do good. And and that leads me to just thoughts about the downside of social media, the downside of the net. There was a, there was a marvelous cartoon in the Sunday paper uh, where, was it Sunday paper Saturday? It doesn't matter, but where somebody said that, uh, somebody expressed the wish that there could be something that would provide the ability for everybody to communicate because how wonderful the result of that might be and it went step by step by what had happened and the hate that it had generated and the anonymity that it enables people to express hate it makes me really really think we need to be focusing very seriously about what is the line between telling Twitter and telling Facebook and, and all of those folks that they need to more vigorously police the messages that go up on their boards because it the downside the downside grows. We got a text in. I know of only one place in Portland is giving the vaccine to convention center. My family in Seattle have been vaccinated some at Costco. No one seems to know what's going on here in Portland. You know, that's a good note. Uh, I don't have a good enough idea of where the vaccines are happening. My wife got hers at OHSU, and she didn't get hers. Uh, But we should be a place, we do intend to be a place, that will give the information as we get it. Uh, We also are aware of the uh, convention center dead. If and when you get yours, you know where you'd go to get it? Well, the convention center is one place. Costco is another place that I, I talked to Costco last week. And they said that you it was that they do not allow scheduling over the phone. You had to do it online, and I went online, and either either because of my incompetence or because I, I don't think it was my incompetence. I think it was just uh, just the system. You wound up with a dead end and not being able to register. But when I talked to him on the phone, which which I had done because I had tried the internet, she said that Costco actually didn't have the vaccine yet. Uh, but uh, they were promised they were going to get it. So so anyway, I expect when I get mine, it'll be one of those two places. 
Amy Coney Barrett has handed down her first Supreme Court decision in a case that has divided the left a bit. Pop, did you did you catch that one? I did. What do you know? <laughs> well, it's it, it, I think there were at least four opinions in that case, so it's kind of hard to know exactly what they have ruled. South Bay United Pentecostal Church asked the state of California. Yeah, generally, generally they said you can't you can't tell churches they can't meet, but maybe you can tell churches that they can't sing. The uh, asked the state of California to be exempt from certain COVID nineteen regulations. California's rule bans uh, outdoor gatherings in regions with high infection rates. In regions with lower infection rates, they let groups of limited size gather inside. They also ban activities like indoor singing, which have a high risk of transmitting the infection. The rules apply beyond to just churches. They also apply to secular places, theaters, lecture halls, activities like recitals and political rallies. And as you said, that Supreme Court handed out four different decisions, leaving some confusion. Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito took a broad and right-wing stance on religious discrimination. They would have struck down all of California's rules on public health limits on worship services, Uh, would have said, you can't tell a church that they're not allowed to get people sick. Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor uh, supported public health policy and followed expertise of scientists and said, as long as it's broadly applied, it's not picking on religion, but just saying, no, a church is also a place and human beings are likely to get sick there. Uh, John Roberts wrote his own decision trying to cleave to the Constitution. The most telling, perhaps, is Amy Coney Barrett's decision, joined by Justice Kavanaugh. Her decision just slightly skosh to the left of her conservative colleagues. She said the ban, the ban on gatherings is unconstitutional, but the ban on indoor singing, as you said, should remain at least for now. The question here is whether the state restrictions apply to both secular and religious groups. The more conservative judges would argue, no, they don't. Barrett's decision complicates that for the time being. Barrett and Kavanaugh are both obviously very conservative justices. Uh, but, Dad, does that teach you anything or just teaches you when it comes to trying to apply rules to religion and either exceptions from or uh, making sure religious organizations follow the same rules? It's a little tricky. Any learning from this? Well, I don't know if, if it's a, a teaching thing or a reminder reminder that the inveighing from the conservative side against legislation by the court is of course so hypocritical because if there was ever a classic example of legislation by the court this is it because the court comes down saying there are four different ways this should be done all of which ultimately are are decisions of a legislative nature no it's a good note the the whole critique of legislating from the bench, that was to be clear, that started when the then the bench legislated in Brown versus Board of Education. When it when it was protecting one's right to choose, when it was protecting against discrimination, then there was a big conservative movement against judicial activism. But when it comes to engaging in judicial activism to come up with your favorite rule about whether or not you should sing in church during the middle of a pandemic, uh, they're a little more comfortable with it. Dad, what else you got? Okay, well, uh, I've, national, international, I've got a lot of both. Which, which which would you like me to start with? Why don't you go through? Why don't you rattle through your international stories? And if there's anything that you want to engage in, then okay, utter so that in a way I, that I will, does. La- I will laundry list a whole bunch of international stuff. Navalny, Navalny has been sentenced to two years in Russia. The unrest in Russia has not ceased, and there's just a, you know, there's a real power struggle going on that is interesting to watch. The uh, Myanmar uh, continues to have huge protests, tens of thousands of people marching, and and I'm wondering if the military is going to be able to to hold on to what they've done there. India, a glacier broke loose in northern India sent into a river resulting in the death of at least 180 people another sign of of global warning warming but while we have global warming blowing up a glacier in india holland is getting its first snow 
in 11 years, and a cold snap named Darcy is affecting northern Europe, which is hitting. Antonio Guterres, the the uh, head of the United Nations, has named Mike Bloomberg as special envoy for climate ambition and solution. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what Mike does with that. The the last in, in the last two years, Iran, Russia, South Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia rather, Myanmar, Uganda, Venezuela, not just Uganda but a raft of other of African countries have put blocks on the internet, which. Uh, which is a very interesting thing. It relates to the issue that I raised earlier. We have we have reported in the past upon the huge glacier, no longer glacier, the, the huge piece of ice that was threatening South Georgia Isle, the uh, that great big iceberg known as A68A Alpha 68 Alpha has broken into 12 pieces. So it's no longer threatening to seriously affect the wildlife, especially birds on South Georgia Isle. That's kind of a good thing. The You mentioned that there are thousands of immigrants crowding on the southern border, and that's going to be a real test of the Biden administration because, of course, folks say, oh, Trump's gone, so now we can get in. I don't think it's going to be that easy, but what we, what I do think we will see is that there's going to be a real effort to make sure that families are not separated from each other and that people who claim they have a legitimate asylum claim get a, a, their, their day in court. Biden is taking us out of the conflict in Yemen. We're no longer going to be supplying Saudi Arabia the... Uh, Armaments, bombs, etc. In that that proxy war, really, that's going on between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and the border wall. The border wall is not going to get any bigger, and uh, cases that uh, were to be argued on the 22nd of this month and the first of next month, where the Trump administration was appealing cases that the district courts had held against what they were doing with the wall. The DOJ has asked that oral argument be canceled, and they're also asking that 17 eminent domain cases, case arguments in Texas are being canceled. So that's a good thing. And then in Israel, Bibi Netanyahu has pled not guilty to charges of bribery and fraud and violation of public trust. And they they're trying to he's trying to get the the trial to be held over till after the election that's scheduled in six weeks. Well, that that's going to be a big test to see whether or not that happens. If that election if that trial does happen in the next six weeks, it obviously is very likely to have some some influence on what the election turns out in six weeks, where they're having the election again because the coalition that was formed has broken down once again. What is it? Is this the fourth? I think this is the fourth election in two years in Israel. They they like elections. Well, particularly when they have a hard time getting a clear majority. That's when they have a hard time forming government. They they Whether they like elections or they like to actually figure out how the heck they're going to get to be able to form a government. Dad, what's next? Anything else international? Well, as a, as a, as a, as a segue from international to national, I just... Our, our senators... Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley have written a letter to the administration asking the administration to really go after getting the fugitives that were ferreted out of the country by Saudi Arabia, uh, guys, guys who were accused of sexual crimes around the United States, got out, would get out on bail. They would be, maybe even be given an ankle bracelet so they couldn't get out. And somehow somehow they got onto private planes and the private planes managed to get out of the United States and they showed up in Saudi Arabia. So Ron and Jeff are asking the administration to do something about that and I sure hope that happens. 
the country is discussing to some degree impeachment. We have an idea, I think, of what the result might be, but what remains to be figured out? Well, what remains to be figured out first is what, what witnesses are they going to call? What will the evidence, evidence be? Opening arguments start tomorrow, and the opening arguments should tip us off as to what at least... Uh, at least what witnesses the parties wish to call. I'm hoping that they call witnesses. The re- related to that, of course, is what's going on around the country. The the official Republican parties of state after state are condemning the Republican legislators who had the temerity to vote their conscience on impeachment and to vote their to speak up on their conscience on the, what happened on the 6th. The Wyoming R's have, have uh, censured Cheney. Sass, Sass, Senator Sass has been, has been censured. Representative Kinzinger has been censured. The Oregon chair of the Republican Party went, went on state TV yesterday to defend the Republican Party's censuring of the folks who, the 11 Republicans who had the courage to recognize that Trump really has committed an impeachable offense in inciting what happened, and also defending defending the false flag claim, saying that, that all the bad stuff was done by Antifa. A problem of fact that they have to deal with is that there are now 235 arrests, or at last count there were 235 arrests, and the arrests have by no means stopped coming. And so far, not one single of those 235 has been identified as an Antifa plant. So they got a little bit of problem with dealing with the evidence on that claim. It probably won't make any difference. Texas... Texas Republicans have have voted on saying, yes, we need to have a vote on secession, and there's going to be a bill actually introduced to the Texas legislature to authorize a vote on secession. I have mixed feelings about, about how I would like that vote to go. All I've got to say is that if they vote to secede, and they, they should have to take their share of the national debt with them, which would be an interesting thing. I, I don't know if you had a chance to, to see the visuals when the House was voting on whether what should be done about uh, the Georgia Congresswoman who has a friend for QAnon, but uh, Denny Hoyer, the, the House Majority Leader, walked around showing a huge blow-up of an ad that Ms. Green had run where she's with holding an AK-47 automatic rifle threatening the pictures of the the four women of color in the in the house AOC et al saying that uh, with the thing saying the, the biggest the biggest danger to the squad just a, just so scurrilous. But one thing that disappoints me a little bit is that media and maybe to some extent the, the House majority have framed the removal, the, the vote to remove her from her committee, strip her of committees as punishment. And it's not punishment. They're not punishing her. What they're recognizing is that someone who believes the, the outlandish things that she believes should not be trusted with participating in where legisl- where legislative decisions actually most importantly are made, because legislative decisions are most importantly made at the committee level, as you well know, and, and, and that that is the issue that should be focused on. I wonder when we are embracing. You know, actually, I know a question I want to ask you it was about Mike Lind- uh, the My Pillow guy. Dad, you watched the My Pillow guy's TV show. His, I didn't watch the whole thing. The, the, you couldn't get two through hours. It. I, I couldn't find the two hour thing. I was tempted to watch, but but there was there was a, a shorter version that they went out, and the abridged version of the My Pillow guy's real truth about whatever the heck he was giving the real truth about. 
it is <laughs> it is so silly it is so silly and and what and, and watching him, but what was it it was making him making the case the election was stolen is that what the my yeah, guy was doing him, him making the case that the election that it all happened because of foreign interference especially from china with all of these hacks into the the election systems in of uh, of the six key states where they're hollering about and, and that where they changed the vote on the machines and and there's that had a had pages of what was alleged to be a record of all of these hacks these hacks each one of which showing how many votes had actually been changed and then a a very fancy showing of lines flowing back and forth well not back and forth just forth from mostly China into the United States, supposedly representing all of these hacks, and he was—he's doing this in a telephone conversation with a woman who is not identified, is not identified where, what her expertise is, uh, is not shown. The her, her picture is not shown. All there is is a black silhouette, so we're not to know who it is. And she's explaining what all this is, and he's saying, "Ooh, ah, oh, wow, this proves it. This proves it." And, and I'm afraid that Mike Lindell, that poor sap, is not a per- perpetrator in these lies. He's not really uh, one who's creating these. He's one who's believing it. He's a victim, and and I think he's going to be terribly disappointed when the lawsuit against him. Which and the lawsuit against him, I suspect, is very likely to go to trial unless he decides to pay a bunch of money because he's got a deep prop, deep enough pocket, profit pocket, to make it worth going after him when he discovers that the stuff he's been peddling is just bullcrap. We've got some minutes to talk about what's happening in our hometown and our home state. Portland's racial disparities and arrests are fifth worst in the nation, according to data from the National Group Campaign Zero. Black people in Portland arrested by police at a per capita rate 4.3 times higher than white people, killed 3.0 times more than white people. That's drawn from the 37 of the country's largest jurisdictions, the only worst places with bigger disparities, Washington, D.C., Seattle, San Francisco, and the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area in North Carolina. Seattle, by the way, number two, as that list may have suggested. Uh, Pop, that brings, raises this question of what should be done with the police budget. And you and I didn't talk about that. Where are you landing? We've seen, of course, there's been a, a rise in crime. There's been a rise in all the bad stuff in the middle of COVID. I like they're, they're, The people who advocate for more police funding will say, ah, see, the gun violence went up when we got rid of the gun violence reduction team. And sure, an effective talking point. Uh, I was on a conference call the other day. I said, yeah, you know what else happened? You know, ever since we got rid of the gun violence reduction team, we saw a huge global pandemic. And that's also true, but they're not related. But we've seen an increase in just about all the bad stuff since COVID. Have you sharpened your view or are you still wrestling with whether the smarter view is to uh, try to retrain uh, to still sort of build the size, rebuild the size of the Portland police force and get it, you know, fill those unfilled positions? Or if you think we're better off at trying to not build the, not build that force, but try to build an, an additional alternative type of community safety? Well, the, there, there are two things that have to happen. They have to happen in tandem, in my judgment. One is pol- police have to be trained so that they are more sophisticated in dealing with especially dealing with people who are having mental breakdown problems and because of their mental breakdown problems are are a threat to either themselves or more well, I don't maybe I should say more important but very important a threat to other people in dealing with them also in their attitude towards public generally and interaction with public generally, recognizing that over the long haul, successful law enforcement critically depends upon cooperation of the public, and cooperation of the public critically requires a basic trust of the populace in the police establishment, that that just has to happen, and there it has to be a trust that goes both ways, an awareness of that. 
in, in tandem with that retraining, though, also a real effort to identify those areas where it is not reasonable to ex- re- reasonable to expect the police to be the front line in dealing with problems and be identifying and and establishing coordination and cooperation with the justice establishment and the health establishment and the welfare establishment so that uh, problems that really should not ultimately be law enforcement problems go somewhere else. But the idea that we should have fewer, fewer cops, I'm just aware that there is a an absolute epidemic of thefts in Oregon of catalytic converters. Catalytic converters are just being swiped and swiped and swiped, which means that somewhere there is a fence that is taking these catalytic converters and paying money for them. And and I have the impression that this is not this is an example of something that isn't a high priority for the police, but maybe should be a high priority to the police. There's also an absolute epidemic of car thefts that maybe should be. And if you reduce the number of police, you do not thereby increase the likelihood that you will get a favorable response when you call up to report that your car has been stolen or your catalytic converter has been stolen. Or, and or and you're not going to solve the problem that emerged during the the protests last year, where at least 38 9/11 calls were literally never followed up on, simply because there were not police available to handle them. Have you been tracking the Mount Hood Meadows land deal, what the swap between the land, the Cooper Spur, and the government camp land? I have not. Tell us about it. So th- this is something that I was unaware of, but it's a big deal. It's a big deal for people who ski and a big people who care about the environment, big pe- people who care about the use of public resources generally. There's been a long-running financial feud, good story in the Oregonian about it, that the hit a big milestone with the U- U.S. Forest Service finally approved a final environmental analysis of a decision. That this has been going on for two decades, this debate. They, Congress first mandated the Forest Service to go ahead with that land swap a little over 10 years ago. But with disputed appraisals, c- Congress and community concerns, new legislation, a mediation process, it's been sort of slow walked. But now it looks like there is, in fact, going to be a deal, or at least there's a draft deal, there's a 60-day window to file objections, and much of it comes at which land is more valuable and if it's a fair deal. The Meadows folks want 67 acres of government camp real estate for residential development. And in exchange, they would give 605 acres of the North Mount Hood land to add to protected areas. Now, you know, it's sort of a 10 to 1, not quite a 9 to 1 uh, uh, swap in terms of acres, but... But the question is location, location, location. Exactly. If you've got access to roads and you've got access to power lines and you've got access to people and population and you got access and your land is worth, you know, 20x and you're only doing a 9x land trade, is it a good deal? An an Alabama appraiser put the value of the government camp land at about $5 million. But uh, there's a Portland-based appraiser. So this Alabama appraiser was talking about and said that the federal land was worth closer to $8.3 million. So anyway, it may be that there is a new big development uh, in, uh, in the government camp area and connected to Meadows, the Meadows folks. And that that will, will grow sort of another big ski resort, bigger ski resort in the in the Oregon in Oregon, the Mount Hood area, and there would also be some protected land. But that's a well, I found that story a little bit interesting. I would say so. I would say so. Oregon business and industry is creating what they're calling a grassroots movement to save three tax breaks. Uh, the grassroots uh, start with the top 1% because one of those tax breaks really is only good for the top 1%. Also, another of those grassroots folks are 
organizations that have more than $25 million in revenue every year because it really affects just those folks. We probably should get a tax expert in to, to, to talk about that because that's something that we're going, going to be seeing happening. It's just this, this is to save tax breaks, to keep the legislature from doing anything about it. And I'm wondering also, will the legislature really go after the Oregon Forest Resources Institute, which a, a very in-depth re- series of reporting by the Oregonian shows really has just become a, a front line for private uh, yeah private propaganda forest. propaganda arm for the for yeah for it really is industry, yeah. and uh, the uh, and and will the legislature also be willing to go after the tax benefits the, the big tax cuts that were granted some years ago on private forests that are really hurting a lot of Oregon counties and those private forests by the way are mostly owned now not by local not by local stockholders, but by folks on Wall Street. Well, that, funds, et well, that is time for our interview with Dan Ryan. Anything, we'll do a straw on the wind in a sec, but anything you want to make sure that I ask the commissioner about? Well, interesting, interesting to hear what he is going to say on the subject of what we were just talking about. Uh, you heard my view on what needs to be addressed with the police establishment really want to hear what he has to say about that. Well, Dad, I think it's time for a straw in the wind. It is time for a straw in the wind, and I have two straws in the wind. First straw in the wind. Fox has canned Lou Dobbs. Probably closely related to the fact of the $2.7 billion lawsuit that Smartmatic has filed against him and Fox and Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and Janine Pirro and Mario Bertomi. And then the other straw in the wind, the Virginia legislature has sent a bill to the governor, which he will sign, abolishing the death penalty. First southern state, former, former Confederate state to do that. That could be a significant straw in the wind. Well, Pop, we did it one more time. We did it indeed, and we will be back on Thursday. Love you, lad. Love you, Dad.